The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. The scripture reading this morning will um, be from Exodus chapter 40. We'll begin in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gwen. Good morning. Hope you're well. My name is Gary, one of the pastors here at Park Church. Good to be with you all. It's great to worship with you all. I'm really thankful uh, for Liz and Hannah being here. I don't know if you've Paid attention uh, to their music. Liz has been putting out some really amazing music over the past couple years. And if you haven't looked into her music, you ought to. Uh, again, Liz Weiss. Um, it's a gift that they would be here leading us in worship. I mean, they had a concert last night and they showed up this morning at 6.30 a.m. So uh, that's pretty awesome. Uh, I wouldn't have done that. Uh, so uh, really grateful, really grateful for them. I would encourage you to check out their music. Liz is also a part of a project called The Porter's Gate. Uh, so some of the songs we've sang about vocation and God's calling in our lives. Um, she's produced and helped uh, kind of put together some of those songs and sing some of those songs. Uh, we'll sing some at the end of the service uh, today. Um, but also Porter's Gate just put out a new album that's really beautiful. So I encourage you, if you're looking for just new music that's looking at the world in fresh ways and fresh music, just to check it out. It's, it's fantastic. Um, before we uh, get into the sermon, two quick announcements. Um, one, uh, if you're part of this church family, uh, you know that we ask regularly as a church to contribute to the mission of the church in a lot of ways, right? We start that thing and you all tune out. You're like, yeah, the three things, yada, yada, yada. Let's move on. Um, well, I'm going to like pause for a minute on that. Uh, this, as we kind of wrap up the year, um, one of the things that we always do every year is just try to look at where we're at financially to end the year in a place of financial strength as a church. And I say that not as a uh, we need your money, more as a I love what God's doing here. And uh, in your faithfulness and your stewardship and your generosity is a huge piece of what God's doing uh, in this church, but also outside of this church and other communities. Um, if you don't know, as a church, um, we contribute, really, it's about 18% of our budget to works that are happening outside of this church. And so it's like $348,000 over this year that we're using to support missions works and missions efforts that are happening in the city, local efforts around the city and church plants internationally, also in the West Coast. And, it, and it's through your generosity, it's through your faithfulness, it's through your stewardship and your commitment to the mission of God that we're able to do that. Um, we shared last week about some of the ways that we're supporting and partnered with works that are happening in the city. Uh, things like Hope in Our City, which we have the Christmas tree over there that you can still grab one of those. We have Providence, and we do the Providence Christmas party. There's the box in the back that's overflowing with gifts. Thank you uh, for your faithfulness there. Um, our partnerships with these works help us in the city, but also our strategy for kind of seeing the mission of God move into other cities 
around the world is really to support church planting primarily, to help establish local churches that love the gospel, love the word of God, and are seeking to disciple people, to care about their cities and reflect God's glory in those cities and those ways. And so we give a lot to international works. Um, but also I want to kind of highlight this morning a lot of what we do, even just in the U.S., is through our family of churches called Acts 29. Uh, if you're looking through your Bible and you're looking for Acts 29, you won't find it. Uh, there's 28 chapters in Acts, and the kind of network that we're a part of is saying, what does it mean to, co- to continue to see the mission of God move forward, that we're the church, proclaiming the gospel, making disciples continually? And, and that's how God is spreading his glory across this, this world. And so we contribute a, a, a big chunk uh, of money to help plant churches and support churches, especially in the western United States and cities like ours and towns all over the western U.S. As far as Alaska and Hawaii, you're like, church planting in Hawaii, come on. You know, like, uh, I would pay to do that. Uh, It actually costs a lot of money to live in Hawaii and to proclaim the gospel. And we're supporting churches all over the place. And we're just, um, it's an exciting thing, but to do that, we really do need to be in a financially healthy situation. And so I just want to encourage you in the faithfulness you've had, but also ask you, as you consider end of the year giving, for some people, because of tax implications, you're thinking about end of the year gifts. That's like some small segment of our church family. Uh, For a lot of you, just even in the kind of closing months of the year, just thinking about generosity and how to think about financial stewardship and how to reflect the generosity of God in this time. And, And would just encourage you, to think about kind of above and beyond your normal giving, if this is your church home, to say what would it mean to continue to contribute to the good work that God's doing in and through this church family? Uh, And to think about prioritizing the mission of the local church and the way you think about uh, your finances and your generosity as we try to end the year financially strong. And maybe for you, it's, you've been here, you're like, I love this church, but you've never given financially. Maybe there's never thought about it, or maybe you have some hard stuff in your past. We get that there's complicated things around churches and money and hard stories. Um, we still think what God's called the people of God to do is beautiful and good and worth financially investing in and prioritizing and stewarding our resources towards. So I'd encourage you to think about what it means to make a step. Maybe it's the first time you've given or supported the local church in any way, but encourage you in that way so that we can keep doing the things that God's called us to do, which are really beautiful and good things. And so thank you again for your faithfulness. We'll be kind of sharing a little more of different things we're involved in uh, as we wrap out the fall. And that's not to kind of join the cacophony of people that are saying like, hey, you know, Giving Tuesday is right around the corner. We try to like stay out of that fray. It's good. Like support nonprofits, do that stuff. We love that. But this is our church family. And we want to prioritize the church family as we think about our stewardship. I think it's a healthy thing to do and a faithful thing. If you're new to Park, uh, we have no expectation that you would in any way be contributing financially to anything we're doing. That's not what we're trying to say. We would love to share with you more about this church family and how to get more involved in the work we're doing, the mission God's given us in the city. And so right after the service, there's a room down this hallway. It's marked introductions. We take about 10 minutes to share a little more of who we are, uh, what we're doing in the city and how to get involved. We'd love to get to know you there right after the service down this hallway in the room marked introductions. Um, Those are all my announcements. And it's our last week in Exodus. Uh, You know, uh, no, not you, just me. <laughs> yeah, I'm bummed to be finishing the series in Exodus. We were talking this week about um, just like what God's been teaching us, talking with the different people about what God's been teaching us, and we decided we're just going to do it again. Uh, no, not really, not really. Um, just out of a show of hands, how many of you have started coming to park this year, since January of this year? 
All right, it's a lot. I think there's a couple hundred people maybe that have started coming to the church this year, uh, which is awesome, but that's why we're going to do Exodus again for you because uh, you missed the, the first part. No, I'm kidding. Uh, we're doing Leviticus instead. Uh, no, also, also kidding about that. Somebody said, they said, I swear if, if y'all do Leviticus, I'm out, uh, which makes me want to do it even more um, for sure. Actually, we're going to be in Matthew this next year, really, uh, which is exciting. Uh, Matthew is a beautiful place where we get to just like look at the life of Jesus and his work and his love and his character and see in him the glory of God. So that's where we're going in the spring, but we'll take some time in Advent to really slow down and think, what does it mean to long for the presence of God practically in our lives? Um, as we say that, uh, the book of Exodus has been a place where we're learning about God's presence with us. He's with us right now, uh, which is amazing. And so let's, let's pause, let's acknowledge his presence. And let's ask him to speak as we finish this journey through this really powerful story. Um, Jesus, we are so thankful. I'm thankful for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the way you've met us in different ways throughout this year. Um, people in this room that have been in all sorts of different seasons of life and experiences that are in all sorts of different places in their relationship with you. People that have been wondering that you've drawn back to you through this time, people that didn't know you and that felt stuck in areas of bondage that you've been bringing freedom to, people in the wilderness, uh, people that are overwhelmed right now in, a, in painful ways, and people that are um, excited about what you're doing in their life. And in all of these different places, you've been meeting us showing us your faithfulness, your presence, your continual pursuit of us. And so we say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Would you do it again today? We don't want to go through these times without you, and we don't want to move through these services or our weeks or our days or our lives without you. And so, Holy Spirit, um, would you remind us of your presence, and would you work in us in power, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, it was about a year ago now that I entered into a, a, one of the darker seasons of my own story. I think for a lot of us, there are these moments in life that you just feel like just it's dark. It's dark times. And I can look back at a, a few seasons, prolonged seasons of just uh, uh, some pain and some just, uh, just sadness, exhaustion, spiritual darkness that I experienced. And this past fall was one of those for me. And I think I tried at certain times and certain ways to be honest about some of that. But it was, it was about a year ago I felt emotionally exhausted. I felt very spiritually depleted. Uh, felt kind of stuck, just struggling with depression, anxiety, frustration, really struggling. I think even just to understand what God was doing, very confused about life. And it was just a, it was a dark, dark season. And it was into that time that I had this really, really beautiful gift of being able to begin to study and prepare kind of in more depth for this series through Exodus. Um, we had made the decision to preach through the book of Exodus back when we were preaching through Genesis a, a couple years ago. Uh, so we were preaching through Genesis and we thought, all right, let's spend some time in the New Testament. So we went to Ephesians and then we knew we were going to come back to Exodus just to keep kind of meeting God in this kind of narrative 
And uh, I had no idea at that point when we made that decision a couple years ago how significant it would be for me where I was at in my own journey with God and how significant it has been for me over this past year. God just kind of like carrying me along and meeting me in different ways as we've watched him show his faithfulness and his presence to the people of Israel on their own journey through this story. And as I've talked with uh, people in this church and we've kind of spent time thinking about what God's doing, I've heard of that kind of theme again and again of God meeting people in this story through this spirit-inspired book, which is a, a true story, but meeting us in fresh ways and significant ways to kind of like hit us in the di- different places that we're at in our own journey in life. And so as we kind of wrap up this particular story, we're kind of getting to the culmination. And at the culmination of the whole story is this image of God pouring out his presence, that his presence is coming and filling this tabernacle, which we've been talking about. And the tabernacle is filled up with the presence of God. And it's a really powerful scene. But this, this phrase, journey, has popped up a couple times, that the Lord is going to continue to be with them. Even though this narrative is closing, he's going to continue to be with them in all of their journeys. They're going to spend the next 39 or so years wandering through the wilderness. And all through the wilderness, the presence of God will be with them, meeting them and guiding them in the form of this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night, sustaining them, guiding them, protecting them, providing for them. He'll be with them. What was interesting to me in kind of studying this passage here, just seeing the way that this really is the culmination of a whole story that's been about God's presence. In fact, the actual pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire aren't showing up for the first time here at the end of the story. They showed up really for the first time as a pillar of smoke and a a pillar of fire in Exodus 12 when God is leading the people out of Egypt. But even before that, you see God showing his presence through a burning bush. He's actually showing his presence through his attentiveness to his people in the midst of their bondage, in the midst of the dark things. And he's guiding them step by step by step all through this journey that they're in. And the journey has taken very different turns and different moments of excitement and worship and singing and moments of darkness and pain and death and destruction and confusion and doubt. All the while, God is present. God is faithful and God is working. And I think that's what we're seeing here at the end. And that's what I want to highlight as we wrap up the story. I'm not going to spend the majority of time in this last passage. What I want to back up and see is the faithful presence of God throughout the whole journey of Israel. And what I want us to see is that no matter where you are at in your journey right now, whether you're coming in in a place of like Christianity, this stuff is new. You're here because life has just like gone into the pit and you feel stuck and you don't know what to do. And religion felt like a a thing to try and you're here. And God is present working there. Maybe you've been following Jesus for a long time and you feel complacency and apathy. You feel like life feels like a a wilderness. And God is faithful. He is present with you there. Maybe life has taken turns, disappointing turns. You've gone into dark valleys. God is faithful with you there. Maybe there are areas where you feel shame and darkness. God is faithful with you there. And that's what we've seen through this whole story is that God is faithfully with us in every stage of our journey. In every stage. And so what I, what I want to do this, this morning is kind of back up and just kind of go back through the journey and look at the faithful presence of God in all of these moments. And not all of them will resonate with you, but maybe you'll remember throughout this past year, somewhere where God was meeting you, maybe it was in the spring or sometime earlier this fall, something that God was doing in you, or maybe it's where you're at right now. But just to back up and say, what does it mean to see God faithfully present, faithfully working at every stage 
in the journey. And I think for me, just walking back through this story this week was, it was emotional because I just remember all of these moments, these evenings and these days of thinking and praying and just these stories that kept hitting me and piercing again and again. And my prayer is that God would yet again uh, pierce us with the beauty, the goodness of his faithful presence with us. Um, I, I laugh at myself often when I do this because I feel like a fool doing it again. But I have 12 points for you this morning. Um, you know, um, so buckle up. Uh, we're going to move pretty quick uh, through these different things. And my hope is that you'd be asking this question all the way through. Where am I? Where am I? You're like, I know you're here. I know you're here. You know you're here. But just emotionally, spiritually, with Jesus, where am I? Right now, just to ask that question. And wherever you are, to see how God might be meeting you right now. Reminding you that right now, where you are, He's faithfully present and he is working. He's working to continue to lead you to deeper joy with him. So the first thing we're going we're gonna to see, we're going to move again pretty quick. Um, the story begins in Egypt. And in Egypt, God is reminding us that he wants to rescue us from the inescapable burdens of life. And that's what we saw in Egypt. The first kind of couple chapters of the story are when the people of Israel are in a very dark place. They're in a kingdom of Egypt under these systems and structures that are, that are crushing them. And we've talked about that theme periodically as we've gone through it, but just to think about that moment, that when you feel the reality of life, when you're in these systems and structures that are leading to this burden and pain, that God is in the business in those moments of working to rescue you from the inescapable burdens of life. Um, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. They had no ability to free themselves, no ability to loose themselves from the chains. And they were living in a system that was demanding more and more and more from them. And as much as they tried to rescue themselves, things got harder and harder to the point where the destruction was so steep that even the kind of little children in all of Egypt are getting murdered by Pharaoh because the kingdom of God and the promises of God's kingdom were a threat to his kingdom. And it was a really dark scene. It's a really dark scene that opens up the whole story where there's a, a group of human beings just getting crushed. And we live in an Egypt. Uh, we live in a real Egypt where there are systems and structures that are exhausting human beings that are crushing and that you feel like, I don't know how to get out of this. I feel stuck in this kind of like way of living and I can't free myself as much as I try, as much as I give. I feel more depleted and, and more tired. And maybe there's these hopes that I could, if I could do this, I could rescue myself. If I could do this, I could rescue myself. If I could do this. Or maybe you're just kind of like building Egypt and like, let's make Egypt great. Let's like make Egypt this awesome place and let's build these, these huge pyramids and let's build these systems. And let's build these structures. And let's build this so that Amer Egypt is this like, amazing place. And if we do that, then life will be good. And that system crushes human beings, crushes us. And God is faithful to rescue us out of those systems and to bring us into where life is found. And that's with him. And so maybe you're here and Christianity is new to you. Or like I said, maybe, maybe you just feel the weight of life. Maybe you've been hanging out around here because it, for whatever reason, you're here, but, but now there's stuff happening and you're like, I feel stuck. I don't know that I've ever experienced life with God and I don't know how to. Is it possible that right now, if that's where you are, you say, where are you? That's where I am. I'm stuck and I don't know how to get out of this. That God wants to faithfully 
show you that he's here to rescue you. He's here to free you. He's here to loose those chains, break those chains, and lead you into joy with him. God's in the business of rescuing us. What we saw in that story was the people of God were crying out. I mean, they were crying out. They were groaning. And it said that God saw them in their affliction. He heard their cries, and it moved him to intervene. Like, just to know right now, God sees you. He hears your groaning. And he cares about that. And when we cry out to him in desperation and pain, when we feel stuck and we're crying to him, he's paying attention. If that's where you are, God sees you. He hears your cries. Whether it's the audible cries in the middle of the night or the deep groaning that you're tucking away because it's too hard to face. He knows it. And he moves towards us to free us from those places. As he freed the people from Israel, he sends this Moses into this story. And Moses comes and and Moses is going to be this messenger from God that's going to be the agent through whom God is rescuing the people. And if, if you remember the story, Moses was reluctant. He had his issues. He had a lot of struggles and frustrations. And yet, like eventually he's kind of coming to the people and he's telling them, God wants to set you free. And the people are like, that's great. And they tell Pharaoh, let my people go that we can come and worship our God. And Pharaoh's like, ah, no, you know, um, no, I want to keep you in this, this system that crushes you. And we learn in that place that God is showing us, and the way he rescues us is showing us his power over all things. And we saw that through the plagues, that we are actually seeing the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Over all things, including the broken structures in the world, including evil, including darkness. And that was a heavy truth. It is a heavy truth to know that God is in control all the time. But what we saw in that is that all, all, like all the while, he's wielding his power to actually rescue a people, to free a people, that it is his sovereign power, it is his strength through which he's not merely rescuing a, a people, but he's showing the whole world that he alone is God. There is no other. And we saw that plague after plague after plague as he confronts the broken systems and the broken structures. He's saying, I am better than the kingdom that humanity can create. I'm the only king. I'm the sovereign king. I'm the creator king. And the only way to life is with me and it's through my power. It's by trusting in my power. And the sovereignty of God can give us peace about our past. When you look at your past and you feel like, man, there are things that happened in your past that were hard, decisions you made, things that happened and you feel all that pain, which is worthy of grieving and feeling and tasting. And here you are and you think, how could my life ever be redeemed? And it's like, man, God, God has been with you. He's been reigning. He's been on the throne. And that gives you peace even in the present. But more significantly, it's his power that gives us hope for the future. It's his control. It's his care. It's his ability to rescue the world from all of these painful and destructive structures. It's his power that we're trusting in. Not our power to free ourselves. Not our, our power to kind of make the world what we long for it to be. It is his power that he's showing the world as he works to rescue a people. And then we saw, his, we saw his faithfulness through the Passover, where we see that God is rescuing us through the blood of a lamb. And this is really one of the heart kind of beat passages in Exodus, that God's rescue of us, his liberation of us, the freedom that he wants to bring us into is not dependent on your effort. It's not. Like you don't have to be good enough 
You don't have to be moral enough. You don't have to be superior to somebody else to be rescued by God. The Israelites were in Egypt and they were worshiping all the same gods of Egypt. And God's rescue of them was not because they had done better than anybody else. It's not because they were more moral or they were more faithful in any way. It was because they trusted in the blood of the Lamb. That you come here today and, and you feel the kind of bondage or you feel the brokenness, you feel the pain in life. And our tendency is to think, We've got to clean ourselves up. We've got to kind of like prove to God that we're faithful again before we experience God's love and favor. And that's the opposite of what this story has told us. He meets us in our sin, displaying to us his love through the blood of the lamb. They, they painted the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, on the doorpost and, and over the door. And that blood of the lamb was through the blood of the lamb, this substitutionary sacrifice that they were cleansed and washed and that they were liberated. And it's through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we experience liberation, not through our effort, not through our striving, not through our put togetherness or how good we can kind of like make our life. It is through Jesus and through Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the blood of the Lamb alone, that God is cleansing us, freeing us, and leading us to life. And that frees us to be really honest about our brokenness. You can be a sinner and be honest about it. You are. You can be honest about it. I am. My heart wanders. I don't have anything to be like, God, but look what I did. Look, look, oh, look at all these things. It's like, man, we can even use religion to kind of promote ourselves so we don't need a savior. And that's the opposite of what Christianity is. Saying even religious activity, even kind of like philanthropic efforts, like aren't earning anything. His love for us isn't contingent on those things. His love for us is displayed beautifully, freely, graciously in the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. And to know that right now, his love for you is not contingent on your effort, on your failures or your successes, and that is freeing. That is liberation, to know the love of God apart from our effort through his grace alone. And so he brings the people of Israel through the Passover, and then he brings them to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea moment was significant for me because at the Red Sea, what we see is that God sometimes leads us to a wall to get us to surrender to his power. That often the path to freedom, the path to freedom involves surrender. And so we kind of hit these moments in life, and maybe this is where you're at, where you hit these walls, these things that you can't get over, you can't achieve, you can't make your way through, and you've hit this moment where you're like, I've been following Jesus, but I feel stuck. I, I, I can't kind of like kind of maneuver through this situation. I can't control this outcome. I can't kind of like get that life I long for, that relationship I long for, that job I long for. I, I, I feel emotionally or spiritually stuck, and I can't like get through this. And so we feel ourselves like stuck at a wall, and that's exactly where the Israelites were. After they came out of Egypt, they didn't go straight up to the Canaan, to the promised land. God led them directly to a wall, to a Red Sea. He led them to the Red Sea in this place that they couldn't get through in their own power. Their striving, their effort, their energy, their wisdom, their intellect, their education, their opportunities, their social skills weren't going to get them through the wall. And behind them comes the Egyptian army, and they get at this place unable to do anything. And do you know what the Lord said to them in, in Exodus 14? He said, you need only to be silent. Like surrender. I mean, surrendering outcomes sometimes. It's like we, we get to this place like, okay, I'll trust you, I'll trust you. And if I trust you, then you'll give me the, the kind of thing I want. Like that's, 
the opposite of trusting him. That's using him. And he brings us these moments to get us to surrender our outcomes. Like, what if that thing doesn't happen? What if they do come? What if this thing does fall apart? Can I trust in the love of God? Can I trust in his presence with me? Can I trust in his goodness? Can I trust in him? And he brings us to the wall to teach us to surrender. And when we surrender, it is the counterintuitive path to freedom. Just to say, I don't have to have that outcome to experience life with God. I don't have to achieve that thing or accomplish that thing. And that's significant. I mean, I think for me, that's a significant thing because I want to find my way over these and around these and under these and through these. And I want to make a way for myself and God when he brings us to these moments. And maybe that's where you're at right now. Say, where are you? I'm at a wall. Is God calling you to surrender? To surrender these outcomes, to trust him. He's with you at the wall. He brought you to the wall. He's present and he's working in you even at the wall. And he wants to lead you to deeper freedom. Well, they did trust in God and God opened up the Red Sea and they came through the Red Sea and God put the Red Sea back over, protecting them from these kind of like the Egyptian armies that were running after them and God brought them to the promised land. No, that's not right. Um, it was the wilderness where they were without food and water and you're like, <laughs> like you're liberating me from this difficulty. You're taking me out of this bondage and you're bringing me into the wilderness. And we looked at in the wilderness that God is in the wilderness, takes us through dark valleys and disappointing turns to actually grow our trust in him. If, if you remember, one of the things we saw is God's taking the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness, he's beginning to kind of like purge the Egypt out of them. The kind of loves and the, and the things that make them want to keep going back to Egypt. I always, always mix this up. What do we have? This is a Egypt over there, right? And Sinai over there, the Red Sea, right? This messes me up because I'm always like, like this is bad stuff in like stage positioning. This is always bad stuff and this is good stuff for me if you ever watch me move across the stage. God's over here and like, uh, you know, other things are over here. And sometimes people make fun of me for hanging 10 because they're afraid I'm going to fall off the stage. But over here we have the pyramids, right? The pyramids. God's not just kind of like rescuing us out of these systems and structures to kind of like get us out. He's actually teaching us to trust him. And it's in the wilderness, it's in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty that he's teaching us that this world is a wilderness. You are in the wilderness. The moment between redemption and all things new, heaven and earth are one. There's no weeping. There's no crying. There's no pain. There's flourishing life. That's the promised land. That's, that's Eden. That's the garden. That's the new creation. That's all the things we long for. And yet there's this season of life that you're in, we're in, in the wilderness where the resources available to you are not enough to create a garden in the wilderness. We're trying to create these oases. Does that feel like the plural of oasis? Feels good. Uh, we're trying to create these oases in the wilderness. And we're like, why can't all of life be wonderful and great and awesome? Why can't we do that? Because there aren't enough resources in the wilderness to do that. There aren't designed to be. There's, it's not designed to be able to create the oasis in the wilderness. It's a season of life designed to teach us to trust in God. Now, there are moments, even for the Israelites, where they went into, the, into like an oasis, where there's palm trees and springs of water and these tastes of what's to come. There are beautiful moments in life to rejoice in. It's a taste of what's to come. And when God moves you out of it, don't think, what the heck, God? Things are good and now they're bad. It's like, no, like God is continuing to teach us things. And this is really significant for me. Because my, my basic MO 
is if I work hard enough, if I try enough, I should be able to improve situations. If I work hard enough and try enough, I should, my family should be great and the church should be great and life should be great. If I can just work hard enough and do more and do more and do more, if I can get it done, then, and like my family's great and this church is great, love y'all. You know, like I don't mean that it's not, but it's not always great. And it's, and it's this lie that like do more, do more, do more, and you can create something like Eden. You can create the promised land in your own effort and striving. And God is deliberately teaching us that we can't. And so maybe that's where you are. You're in the wilderness and you feel things aren't working out the way I want them to do. Is it possible that God's faithful presence with you there is to teach you that he is the one who's sufficient. He protects us in the wilderness. He provides for us in the wilderness. He guides us through the wilderness. He's with us in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were with them even while they struggled and doubted and were frustrated and grumbling and complaining. God was growing their trust in him, teaching them to trust in him. Maybe that's where you are. God is with you in the wilderness. He sees you. He's paying attention to you. He's working in you. He is active. He is present. In the dark valley you're in, in the disappointing turn that your life took, when things didn't work out the way or the marriage fell apart or the, or the things going poorly with your children or, or life isn't measuring up or your career trajectory isn't on the path that you thought it ought to be in at this point in your life and it's not working. God is present. He's active. He sees you. He's faithful in the wilderness. That's been huge for me. I'm hesitant to say this because now you're all going to psychoanalyze me. Uh, but I'm an Enneagram 3, uh, which means I care what you think about me. Uh, uh, it's cats out of the bag. You know, that's like my thing I got to meet with Jesus in. But it also means like I want to achieve stuff. I want to like accomplish something. I want life to move forward. I want, and God's like continuing to show me in the wilderness that I'm not enough, which is a terrifying thing for me. I am inadequate. It's awesome. Yes. Woo. It's freeing. I'm not enough and neither are you. I'm insufficient and so are you. And God is sufficient and he's teaching us of his sufficiency in the wilderness. And then God brings them to Sinai uh, where it's a powerful moment where you see his presence like on the top of this mountain and and it's this like reminder that God's not just rescuing us from pain and difficulty. He's actually taking us out of Egypt and into his presence. The whole point of the second half of the book of Exodus is what does it mean to live in the presence of God, to know his covenant love, that God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants to live life with you. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to center your life on his presence. The point isn't just like rescue me from the pain. It is to live life, to enjoy life in the kingdom, in the presence of God. And that's all that's happening at Sinai, which is the whole scene of the second half of the story. They're learning what it means to live life in the presence of God. They're learning that. And so then God meets them in the law and giving them instructions for life. That's what he's doing in the law, saying, this is the path to life. It's my word and my wisdom. You are coming out of a society that had a different way of living, had a different vision for life, had a different kind of path to joy and to fulfillment, to satisfaction and to rest and to financial security and to hope and to, and to acceptance. The world's offering a voice. It's offering words to you. You're being inundated by those messages and they won't give you life. God is saying, it's my word. It's my instructions for you. 
It's my call to you. I want to lead you to life. That I feel like in the second half of Exodus, what I keep seeing is like, I want Jesus. I want to worship Jesus. But I keep living my life according to rhythms and structures and systems and values that undermine my experience of the presence of God. I live my life in rhythms that are aimed at a different path. And God's saying, I'm not just rescuing you from the brokenness of that path. I'm teaching you another way. There's another way. And we saw that through the law. We saw that his way of life includes loving our neighbor and pursuing justice and caring about civil and social justice in the world. He cares about rest and he cares about holiness and he cares about family and he cares about society and he cares about these things, about us being in a position where we hear his word because of his presence with us. We give our lives to others. And we saw this, that they're already rescued from Egypt. Their obedience to the law isn't earning them something. God's not giving them the law like, do more, do more, do more. That's Egypt. So if you try to think of the instructions of God in an Egypt-type framework, do more, do more, do more, do more religious stuff, and God will be happy and you'll have life, that'll crush you. If it's God has rescued me freely and he's offered me a better way, ah, that feels better. It's a lighter burden. It's a more restful way. And we saw that in the giving of the law. And then in particular, and I just want to highlight this one because I think this is significant for a lot of us. He's showing them his faithfulness by giving them rest. We talked about this, this idea of Sabbath. That in Egypt, it was a system that was not restful at all. It's something that led to pain and burden that they tried to escape from without any kind of like fruitfulness. And that's what we do. We like feel the pain and burden and we try to escape. We try to escape through something. Pick your cultural narcotic of choice. Something. Or actual narcotic or whatever it is for you. Some substance, some practice, something to, to escape the burden. And God is saying like, no, I want to give you a different type of rest, which isn't toil, 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 escape. It is work with me, live with me, abide in my love, and then rest with me. So we talked about Sabbath as a gift that God's given us that many of us have said pass to. God's like, hey, I have this gift. I want you to learn how to rest with me, how to enjoy life with me, how to Rest, and even this idea of a 24-hour period of time, a rhythm in a week, to say, I'm going to reject burden, and I'm going to pay attention to what's restorative and life-giving for me and my family. Um, our family, I've, I've joked about this. Um, my wife and I would feel like sometimes Christmas Day is like this most restful day of the year because it's like the one day, it's like we're resting, we're not planning anything, we just kind of stay with our little family. And uh, nobody's emailing or calling or expecting anything. It feels like there's nothing to do. And it's just awesome. It's a beautiful day of rest. And it felt like one of the only days in the year that really felt like that. What we're learning, imperfectly, we're learning like Sabbath is starting to feel like that every week, which is great. Like to have a day a week where it's just like, no, what does it mean to create that kind of space once a week? And it's been emotionally refreshing. It's been more restful and and we're struggling and we have issues and things make that hard. If you have little kids, that can be really hard. If you have toddlers or infants, that's really hard. But to lean into what does it mean to enjoy life with God, to enjoy this world, and to say, I need to work to create structures and, and kind of push away the pressures and the obligations to have a day a week to rest with God. And the way that bleeds into then a life of rest with God, a life that's more attentive to his presence and his care, a life that's kind of less striving and toiling. And God's meeting us there. And it's on a journey, right? It's, I've talked to dozens of people about this since we talked about it on a Sunday. Dozens. And all of us are struggling. It's okay. 
Like we're learning. It's a practice that takes time and effort and energy and learning and growth. Like any exercise, like you're learning it and you're working out the kinks and it's okay. But God's meeting us in those places in powerful ways. I think he's been meeting us in there. Maybe that's where he wants to meet you again. What does it mean to revisit that theme and say, God, I want to experience rest with you? And then we looked at the tabernacle. And, and this, you know, there's all these themes in the tabernacle. There's the actual design for the tabernacle. There's the priesthood in the tabernacle. There's the sacrificial system. All the, and then there's the building of the tabernacle. And all of these themes are like all about God wanting his people to center their lives, to orient their lives around his presence. Say all of life ought to be oriented around his presence. God is with us. He's with you. Jesus said that. I'm going to be with you always. And like the, it'd be like the Israelites saying, like, we build the tabernacle. We got it. God's with us. But we keep it packed up in these packs over on the side. And we just kind of build civilization and build life and kind of do life. His presence is over there in the margins. But we got plenty to do without having to worry about building the tabernacle. Plenty to do. And so we busy ourselves with the things we're trying to do in life. Rather than saying, prioritize the presence of God. Put it at the center of your life. Put it at the beginning of your day, in the middle of the day, in the end of the day, and remind yourself, create rhythms in life to say, God, this kind of like space of time to, to remember, God, you're with me. You love me. And then do the things. Do all the things that God's designed you to do and called you to do. But with God's presence at the center, that's what the tabernacle is about. You were designed as a human being to live your life with him, attentive to his presence. He's with you, giving you strength and power and wisdom and insight, giving you rest and joy and guidance and say, I'm going, to put, I'm going to put God at the center. I'm going to put him at the center. Now, the Israelites struggled with that, and so do we, which is what we saw with the golden calf. With the golden calf, they're like passed on the presence of God and decided we're going to create our own way. We're going to create our own way. So they build this calf. They take all the things God gave them, all the good gifts God gave them, and they create, this is what's going to give us life in the wilderness, is this golden calf. And we'll take some God too, because that's good. So we got some Yahweh and we have some of these other things and we're going to create these things. And we talked about how an idol is anything that pushes God out of the center. A good thing, probably a great thing that's just pushed God at the center. It's, it's begun to preoccup, preoccupy this kind of place of preeminence in your mind, the way you think about life. It's the main governing agenda, value, kind of like thing that's going on for you. And God is off in the margins and he doesn't want to be in the margins. And there's a really powerful scene where he shows us the toxicity and the destruction and the pain that comes when we push him to the margins. And in that scene, he showed incredible mercy. Incredible mercy and grace and faithfulness as Moses intercedes for the people, pleading with God to show mercy. And that all who turn to God, all who say, I'm going to be with Moses and I'm going to follow God, experience forgiveness and grace. And God is forgiving them and washing them and cleansing them. And bringing them into his presence. And then we get to the end of the book. To this moment where they've built the tabernacle. They've used their gifts for God's glory. And now God has come to flood that place. I mean, just flood it. And it's a beautiful scene right here at the end. The glory of God comes into the tabernacle. It's been built. It floods the tabernacle. And it feels like this is what we've been waiting for. The people of Israel, finally, God's at the center. They finally trusted him. They turn from their idols and they turn from those ways of pursuing life without him. And they've been rescued from the slavery and they've learned to trust him and they've received mercy. And they're now like, God, you're at the center. And, the, and it feels like there's a typo in verse 35. Because it's like, and then Moses was not able to enter. And you're like, wait, What? You know, it just feels like a bad ending. You know, it's like everything we've been working towards and then, and then it's like Moses can't go in. Like, what's going on? Well, at one level, at one level, it's actually paving the road for what's going to happen in Leviticus. 
In Leviticus, God's going to teach them that to live in his presence is going to need it's going to need sacrifice. It's going to need the offering of a substitute. It's going to need them to continue to look to the blood of these lambs and these bulls and these goats. And so in that sense, really, we get to the heart of the whole story, that the Exodus, more than anything else, it's all about Jesus. Every moment, the whole story, that Jesus is the one that's intervening in the midst of the brokenness of this world to rescue a people for his name, to, to loose us from the chains, to pull away the bondage from those places that we, those burdens that are crushing and we feel stuck. Jesus is the one who came into the world to set you free and he set you free through his own blood. Jesus is the Passover lamb who shed his blood, who laid down his life to bring cleansing and forgiveness so that with your failures and your weakness and your struggling and your wandering, that you can know that God loves you because he's shown you in Christ, through the blood of Christ, that you're loved and you're forgiven and you're free. And Jesus is the one that's with us in the wilderness. He's the one guiding us, where for 40 days, we'll see in Matthew, he wandered through the wilderness being tempted just like we are, totally faithful. So every time we struggle, every time we grumble, every time we fall, every time we turn, every time we cave, Jesus is there saying, I've been faithful for you. Trust in me, turn to me. That he's the bread from heaven. He's like the manna that satisfies in the wilderness. He's the water that comes out of the rock to give life in the midst of the wilderness. He's the one guiding and directing us through the wilderness. He's the one growing our faith, present with us always, always, he said. I'm always with you. He's the word of God that has said, if you want life, if you want a path to life, I'm the way, I'm the path. I'm the truth. I'm the life. If you want life with the Father, the life you are designed to live, it's through Jesus. It's by looking at him and following him and learning from him and watching him and trusting in who he is and what he's done. He's saying, I'm the giver of life. Jesus is the tabernacle. He's the high priest. He's the sacrifice. The whole story is saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. And Jesus is the one that's looking at every one of you, wherever you're at on your journey, truly, wherever you're at in your journey. And he's the one that's giving this invitation, which is essentially the invitation of the Exodus, is Jesus saying, come to me. Come to me. I'll give you life. I'll give you rest. I'll give you joy. I'll give you love. Come to me, all you who are labor, you're burdened, you're striving, you're trying, you feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel depression, you feel stuck, you feel whatever it is, wherever you are, Jesus is standing saying, come to me. I'll give rest for your soul. That's the invitation of the Exodus. Is the invitation of Jesus saying, I'm the way to life. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. That we could experience life, the life we were designed to have. So even as you think about where am I now, just to hear now today, the invitation of Jesus saying, come to me. Orient your life around me. Trust in my work for you. Look at my love and my faithfulness and I'll give you life. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask right now um, that you would, in really personal ways, sing that invitation over your people. Uh, over every person in this room that you would be singing over them even now, son, daughter, I see you. I hear your cries. I see your wandering. I see the things that have happened. 
and I'm with you. I'm present. I'm present. Come to me. Friend, that you would hear that invitation. They'd hear it in the wilderness. You'd hear it in bondage, that you'd hear it in your wandering, that you'd hear it in your joy, that you'd hear it in your striving, that you'd hear it as you feel emotionally confused, that you'd hear the voice of Jesus today saying, son, daughter, I see you. I'm paying attention. I love you. Come to me. I'll give you life. I'll give you rest. I'll give you love. I'll give you joy. I'll give you freedom. I'll give you hope. And so God, would you help us even as we celebrate this beautiful gift of your table where we consider your broken body, Jesus, and your shed blood, that this would be for us a turning to you because there's no other way to life except for through you, Jesus. And so we say thank you in Christ's name, amen.